Well, thank you so much, worship team, and uh, so grateful for their leadership, their abilities, what they bring, and thank you, Chuck, for your role as well. Before I begin with the message this morning, very, very important thing I need to follow up with you on last week. Some of you were so bothered that I did not finish the skunk story in the window well. Okay, now, if you weren't here last week, you could go back and listen to the podcast. We had in our offices a skunk in one of our window wells. I did not finish the story, and it throws some of you off so much that you can't even pay attention to anything else that was said last week at all. And some of you even asked me this morning, can you please relieve the tension? What happened with the skunk in the window well? So I have in a bag back here. <laughs> Just kidding. Some brave soul put a trash can in the window well, skunk crawled in the trash can, cardboard thing down over the lid of the trash can, pulled the trash can out, threw it and ran. Skunk, dazed in the parking lot, stands there and then walks away. Maybe into your car. I don't even know where the skunk went. I don't care. It's not in the window well. So there we have it. But that did not happen until Monday evening. So I could not have finished the story last week because it was still ongoing. Isn't that exciting? Come back next week when you will learn more about adventures in skunk lane. Okay. That covered. Welcome to this morning. With that story now behind us, you are catching us on the tail end of a series we call Refocus, Refresh, Refuel. And the focus of this series is meant to bring us back as a church to ask some really basic questions about what we're doing, where we're going, and what it's going to feel like on the journey. In fact, we ask those very questions. We ask this question, first of all, what are we doing? What is it that we're doing as a church body? And we answer that question by saying we are in the business of developing fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And then we ask the question, where are we headed? What's going to be happening next? We talked about heading toward or moving toward being present in the town square, that we want to be relentless in pursuit of the social, spiritual, and cultural good right here in our community. That's kind of our vision of what you can picture, imagine GBC to be heading toward. And we ask the question, what will it feel like on the journey? Just like you take a road trip and every car feels different, the kids are maybe jostling for position, or maybe you're needing to use the bathroom, maybe you're a stop every 10 minutes person, maybe you're a let's not stop at all person. What does it feel like on the journey that we take together? We ask that question, we're answering that over the course of these weeks, talking about our core values. We've talked about quite a few of them so far today. We're going to talk about one more core value, and I'm so um, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you here this morning, because to me, this is one of another one of those foundational pieces of how we think about one element in our life that's so, so important, and it's this little word of authority. Now, I'm going to go right into it this morning, because there's a lot that I want to pack in and get to you. So I'm just going to, we're going to jump right away. This morning I want to talk about this big issue of authority and where it comes from, what we yield to and when we don't. Um, when you start thinking about authority, there are some times in life when it is easy to yield to authority. For example, my dad, some of you know, um, about four years ago he had triple bypass surgery. He had what they called the Widowmaker. Uh, he had a 100% blockage, 90% blockage, and 30% blockage in, in, in going into his heart. In other words, he should have died. That's why they call that phenomenon the Widowmaker. He's still with us, gratefully, and they did triple bypass. And I will tell you this. All right, we walk in to talk to the surgeon, the heart surgeon, about what he's going to do. Now, if he were to ask me, now, Tim, do you have any suggestions of what I should do when I'm in there, or would you like me to do what I think is best? Well, Doc, it's easy for me to submit to your authority. I have no idea. You do what you think is best. Your knowledge, your experience, well beyond mine. It would be in everyone's best interest for me to submit to your authority. Some of you are new moms, new dads. Part of your anxiety, becoming a new mom or new dad, is, I mean, what do I do? All of a sudden, I bring this little kid home from the hospital, and what do I do? And one of the things that you do, because you're smart people, is you ask other experienced parents, how did you do it? What are some tips? What are some whatever? I want to raise good kids. What do I do? When we invite authority into our lives, it's easy to submit to that because we want to know. We want to know. Now, it's easy when knowledge and experience is clearly better than yours and mine. It's easy when you invite someone to be an authority like that. It's hard every other time in life. Every other time in life it is difficult to submit to authority. It just is. It's just hard. 
It's just very, very difficult. Um, there's a couple reasons for that. And one, uh, you, how many of you have ever had to submit to someone out of a position, but you didn't respect them as a person? Now, don't, you can raise your hands in a minute, but don't nudge or look or anything, okay? But how many of you have ever had to deal with this issue of, I'm having a hard time submitting to someone who's in a position of authority over me, but I don't respect them as a person? Anyone ever deal with that? Six, eight of us, really? No, oh, there we go, okay. There we go. Thank you. Some of you are still kind of doing the small hand raise, and I need the big hand raise because it's hard for me to see what's up. So good. Uh, actually, quite a few of us have dealt with that. It's common to deal with that, isn't it? Here's the problem with submitting to authority, and that is this. Because, because of how God has wired us, he's given us a brain and a, and a will to think independently. And so we tend to think that we're... We're smarter than, we're better than, we're stronger than, we're more savvy than, whatever than, whoever else. And this usually starts around the age of two. Uh, right around the age of two, you really don't need mom and dad anymore to tell you what you now know to do. Right? Like, I don't need you to tell me when to go to the bathroom. I'm good with that. Whoops. You know, I mean, that's just kind of the way it works, isn't it? Like, right away, right away. Like, I don't need you to tell me what to do because I got this. I got this. I, like, I'm smart. I don't, I don't really need someone to tell me how to run the business. I, I got this. I can figure this out. Because you're, you're smart people and you think critically and you evaluate everything that's going on and you, you got this. You, you got this. And I, and I get that. I understand that. That's just part of what comes with authority. Now, here's, here's the thing that I want to talk about this morning and that is this question of why do we submit to any authority at all? Why is it that we would submit? Oh, oh baby. There we go. Why do we choose to submit to any authority at all? Why is it that sometimes we submit and sometimes we don't? And this is a really good question. Why is it that, that ultimately you will decide or I will decide to submit to some authority? It's a great question to ask. And here's what I want to suggest as the answer. I'm not going to beat around the bush on this. I'm going to go back to what we talked about last week. I think the answer to this question is simply this. The reason we do this is we submit to authority when we believe it will make us happier. We believe that it will make us happier if I submit to this authority than if I don't. For example, when I am driving on the back roads, the beautiful back roads of Lancaster County, and I have to get somewhere in a hurry because I have not left enough time, okay? It's not that I'm a victim here, okay? I've chosen not to leave enough time. I get, get somewhere, and I'm used to the back roads that I drive on, and I see a stop sign, okay? This eight squared, eight sided thing, red thing, it says stop sign. Now I will interpret that as, here's what the stop sign means to me. Intersection. It's, it's all it's doing. It's just telling me that there's an intersection coming. The stopping part is optional depending on how well you know the area and how much traffic is actually coming. And so I'll go up to that stop sign and in that moment, I'll decide, do I go down to zero miles an hour and do the three-second full-on stop, left, right, left, and go, which almost, almost never happens. Don't tell anybody in charge, okay? Almost never happens. Or do I roll through that at, a, you know, three, four miles an hour? Or sometimes, there are some stop signs in some bad places, I just want you to know, that are completely unnecessary. Full view of everything that could possibly be happening, right? There's only 10 cars that ever drive on that road and nine have already passed. And so you just always know it's clear. The stop sign simply is a warning to you, intersection. Make a good decision on what you want to do. In that moment, I will tell you, the thing that will make me happier is going. Going. Now, track with me here. You're in the car. I'm coming up to the stop sign. And I can see clearly now, okay, now I can see clearly there's no traffic. I can go, just a warning, just a warning, there's an intersection. I come up, and I just happen to see, I just happen to see a cop sitting over here. What will make me happier? All of a sudden, I'm stopping. I'm not submitting to the authority of the stop sign. I'm submitting to the authority of the cop who will enforce the authority of a stop sign, all of a sudden it'll make me happier to stop. Even though it doesn't make me happy, can you clarify that? It'll make me a degree of happier to actually stop and not get ticketed for that moving violation. The same is true for speed suggestion signs. You've seen those all around, right? <laughs> speed suggested 55, speed suggested 65. 
It just, it's just a suggestion, right? Until, until there's a policeman and then it actually reads differently, speed limit. And this is just the way that we work and what makes us happier. We tend to respond to what makes us happier. And that's what we choose to respond to an authority. Now, with that being said, two things you need to think about related to that. If that is true, that we will respond or submit to authority when it makes us happier, there are two things that are very important for us to understand. These are foundational to the entire message today, okay? So track with me on this, if you will. Number one, we covered this last week. Pursuing the highest good always results in our greatest happiness. Driving along the back road, and I see the stop sign, without a policeman there, my highest good is I'm going to roll through that or move through that at a moderated, controlled, cautious pace, of course. I'm going to go through that because my interest is having nothing slow me down to get to where I'm going. That's my highest good at that moment. That's what I think it is. All of a sudden, things change when the policeman is there, and the higher good is I don't want to get ticketed. It's okay if I'm four seconds late, maybe two seconds late to where I'm going, which is really all it would take to actually stop. It's okay because the highest good has been replaced by something else. And we know this is true, which is why sometimes when you go on... A diet of any kind, that's a financial diet or a a food diet or uh, any other kind of diet that you might go on, you know that there are times when not giving yourself all that you would like to give is actually results in a greater happiness in the end. By choosing only to have limited portion sizes at your meal results in less weight on the scale. That's the higher good. We know this principle is true. Now here's Here's the, the problem with this principle, and this is a really, really big problem. This is, this is the crux of the problem, as I see it related to authority and how you and I lead into life, this next point right here. And that is this, while this is true, there's a major problem, that major problem is this, we are not good at figuring out the highest good. We, we are not good at figuring out the highest good. To put it another way, we are consistently inconsistent at figuring out the highest good. If you don't want to say that you're not good at it. And here's how I know this is also true. Have you ever made a decision that you have regretted? Have you ever made a decision and you've looked back on that and you've thought maybe months later, years later, maybe a week later, what was I thinking? Why did I date them? Why did I buy that? Why did I get that roommate? Why did I say that to my mom? Why did I invest in, or give in to, or respond to, or why did I not when I should have? Have you ever, ever made a decision that you regret? And of course the answer is yes, if you're human. And so here's the problem. We know that pursuing the highest good will always result in our greatest happiness. But we live with a constant problem, and we live with ourselves. And we live with this constant knowledge that we are not good at discerning even our own highest good. We are consistently inconsistent when it comes to making the best decisions about what the highest good even is. Because we look at our own track record and we know where we have failed. So wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great? Can you imagine? Check this out. If only, if only there was a way to discern the highest good without bias, even if it went against what we think is best. If only there was a way where we could discern the highest good, even if it went against what we thought was best. And you, I believe, would be open to that. Because you know as well as I do that we are not the smartest people in the universe. Like, we might know some things, we might even know a lot of things, but we also know that we prefer truth over just our own way. Like, wouldn't it be great if there was a way to know the highest good without bias, even if it meant that what you and I thought was right proved to be wrong? Like, you would rather know, you would rather know the tough truth about your life than not know it. You would rather know that if you thought, man, I'm going to buy a house, that house looks awesome, You would rather know if someone could tell you, you know what, I will tell you why that's a terrible idea. The market is going to turn, right? The market's going to turn, your neighbor's going to leave, you're going to lose your job, blah, 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 blah. If someone could kind of tell you and predict what's going to happen and say, you know, I know how much you want to do that terrible idea, don't do it. If you trusted them for the highest good, you would actually 
do that, even if it's against what your interests are. If you have this great interest in dating somebody and someone smart and wise who was kind of infallible, never made mistakes, came along and said, here's why this is a bad idea. And you believe them to be true. You would say, I want to follow that even if, even if it means going against what I want. Because at the end of the day, we don't want to just do what I want. We want to do what we think is best. Often we mix them together and think, I always know what's best. But we also know we are people who make decisions that we regret. So our biggest aim is not living to our own standards, but making the best decisions we can, even if it goes against what we believe. Now, with that being said, here's where we're at as a church. And here's why I, I lay all this out. One of our core values, we put this way, and, and if you're, you're here at church, you might come to expect this could be true, but this is the foundation for why we say this core value, why we put it in this way in our terms, and then I want to tell you a story. That at the beginning, middle, and end of the day, God is in charge, and what he wants goes. We say this, the Bible reveals God's clearest desires. When what I want conflicts with what God wants, he wins. This is why we list this out as one of our core values of what will it feel like to be here at Grace Point Church? What will the church feel like on the journey to being in the town square, to being the church that develops fully devoted followers of Christ? Here's one of these guiding principles for us, that the beginning, middle, and end of the day, God is in charge. And here's what we believe, that God always knows the highest good. Always. Always. And we believe that the Bible reveals God's clearest desires for that. And we believe there are going to be times when God's desires are going to go against yours and against mine. And when that happens, he wins, not me. At the end of the day, I believe that's what we all want anyway, is to know the truth, not just what I want to hear. Now, in order to illustrate this, there are so many moving parts how we interact with both the Bible and God's authority. I want to take you to a story in the Old Testament. Because the story in the Old Testament um, helps us see in so many ways how the Bible will work, how God's authority works, where authority even comes from. So, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Kings. This is maybe an obscure passage for you. You may never have really stopped and hung out in 1 Kings chapter 22. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's no problem. There's a Bible near you uh, in the pew, and that's our gift to you, by the way, if you don't own a Bible. Uh, 1 Kings 22, that, just as a tip, it comes right before, uh, what is it? Oh, yeah, 2 Kings, right before 2 Kings. <clears throat> Thank you for the two of you who laughed at that. That was... That was Appreciate that. All right. So, First Kings before Second Kings. First Kings is to the left of the Psalms. Okay, it's uh, several books into your uh, Old Testament there, and uh, we're picking it up in a time period in the nation of Israel, in which uh, there is a, what we call a divided kingdom. Okay, uh, think of our civil war era in the United States, North versus South. In a way, that's what was going on here: North versus South, civil war time, not a great time. Uh, so, I want to tell you the story rather than just share a principle because I think the story is so so helpful. Uh, and kind of a weird story, and it's a story in which you're going to say, man, I did not know that this was in the Bible. Here it is. 1 Kings 22. I'm reading from the New International Version. Uh, so for three years, there was no war between Aram and Israel. Now, you know what happens in the ancient times when there's no war between countries? They get bored. Like, what do we have to do besides fight each other? So they're starting to get bored, getting, getting antsy. Verse 2. But in the third year... Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went down to see the king of Israel. Isn't that nice? Nice little trip down to see the king of Israel. Judah in the north, Israel in the south. The king of Israel, whose name is Ahab, by the way, Ahab, had said to his officials, this is important, verse 3, know this. He had already said to his officials, like he's just sitting around, don't you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us and yet we're doing nothing to retake it from the king of Aram? In other words, I'm bored. We've been sitting around, hey, we could have been fighting. We've been here for three years. We haven't even fought. Hey, do you guys remember Ramoth Gilead? They belonged to us, and yet we're doing nothing to retake it from the king of Aram. I'm getting, I'm getting bored, getting a little antsy. So here comes Jehoshaphat. They come down. They, uh, they share a little coffee together. I don't know what they're drinking, a little bit of tea together. They're sitting there together. This is a little funny. We've got north and south kings sitting together. And so Aram, uh, excuse me, Ahab says to Jehoshaphat in verse 4, hey, since you're not fighting anybody anyway, will you go with me to fight against Ramoth Gilead? And you know what they called it? The Together Initiative. Let's go. No, I'm just kidding. 
that let's go fight against Ramoth Gilead. And so Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, uh, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. That's kind of neat and nice and friendly and all that. So let's go slaughter people together. Verse 5, but Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, and this is so important, first, seek the counsel of the Lord. Like, in other words, if I'm potentially going to die, I'd like to know if God wants us to do this. Not a bad thought. Like, in other words, I know that you're friendly and all, but I know you like to fight. I know you're bored, and so I know you want to, but I want to know, does God want to? It's pretty good. It's kind of a noble thought. And so, verse 6, Ahab, the king of Israel, brought together the prophets. And notice how many of them there are, about 400 men. Can you imagine where they would fit? What kind of room holds that? A lot of people. 400 men. And he asks them, Shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? (laughs) Let me ask you this. Have you ever had a boss who's asked you a question that they want you to respond yes to? Have you ever had a boss or, or someone in charge who's asked you a question and you know the right answer before they even finish it? Because you know that they want to. Now, what would you do if you're one of these prophets? And he's already said in verse 3, because he read it here in verse 3. Go back to see it again. The king of Israel had said to his officials, don't you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us and we're doing nothing to retake it for the king of Aram? This word is getting out. Ahab is saying, guys, this is what we should be doing. And so then Jehoshaphat comes down, and just to kind of make things good with Jehoshaphat, he says, hey, let's bring all the prophets together. Hey, everybody, do you think we should do this or should we refrain? Now, Who writes your paychecks? Ahab does. What do you think you're going to say? Well, Ahab, I know you want to, but I don't think we should. With 399 other people there? So what do you think they say? They say exactly what they are expected to say. Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. Now, Jehoshaphat is a smart guy, and he recognizes the problem. The problem is you are all employed by this man. We have a conflict of interest. If you say no, you might lose your job or lose your head. You can't really say no to the king. So Jehoshaphat, verse 7, asked, but is there not a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? Scathing critique. Not just a prophet employed by Ahab. I want a prophet of the Lord. So Ahab, verse 8, the king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, well, there's still one man through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. That's awesome. It's in the Bible. Because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. That's perfect. That's always good. Hey, if you don't like what God says, don't listen. That'll go well. <laughs> that doesn't change what God says. It just means we don't hear it. And so verse 8. So there's a guy, Micaiah, but I hate him. And Jehoshaphat smartly answers, the king should not say that. Ooh, goody two-shoes, Jehoshaphat, all right. Verse 9, so the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, bring Micaiah, son of Imlah, at once. Like, he's not even around. You've got to go find the guy and bring him in. And so check how they do this. They get dressed up in their royal robes. The king of Israel, Ahab, and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance of the gate of Samaria. They are decked out in their royalty. They are playing it up. They are having a high old time. They're um, at the threshing floor, which is where they're seeing the fruit of their harvest come in. They're seeing all the work. They're seeing the success of the kingdom and the fields come in by the gate of Samaria. And then all the prophets are prophesying before them. We have all 400 of these people out there. And look at verse 11. Zedekiah, son of Kenanah, had made irons, and he declared, this is what the Lord says, with these you will gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. How, do you, how long do you think it would take to make iron horns? Because in that time, this is what they're doing. It's not just, yeah, we think it's a good idea, but we think this is such a good idea. Let me show you how committed I am to your idea. I'm going to make iron horns. Then I'm going to kind of put them on my head, I don't know, and kind of run around and say, this is what you're going to do to the king. They are really trying to speak into and say, go do what you want to do. With this, you're going to gore the Arameans. And all the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. Attack Ramoth Gilead and be victorious, they said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. You need to know this now. These people are now quoting scripture to the king. They're now quoting Deuteronomy 33 to Ahab. 
They're taking what we might commonly refer to as the authority of the Bible, and they're giving it to the king and saying, King, I'm telling you, giving the authority to do this. God is with you. Verse 13. Meanwhile, the messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, Look, as one man, the other prophets are predicting success for the king. You don't know that because you're not there, but that's what's happening. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. (laughs) But Micaiah said, As surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. And so, verse 15, he arrives. You can just imagine him arriving, and he's walking into this scene where there's hundreds of prophets prophesying, continuing to tell the same story to King Ahab. Hey, Ahab, on the authority of the Bible, the Scriptures, go take this. God is with you. I want you to go do this thing. And he arrives, and Micaiah is asked in verse 15. Ahab asks him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? You know what he says? Attack and be victorious, he answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. (laughs) And if you notice, that's a direct quote from verse 12. Because you know what's happening? Micaiah is walking in and he's like, this is a joke. This is a sham. Look at all these people who are telling the king what he wants to hear. And he quotes exactly what is already being said to him. And the king knows you are a sarcastic prophet. So he says in verse 16, the king said to him, how many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? He knows he's lying. He knows he's just feeding him the lie that the other people are feeding him. Then Micaiah answered, well, if you want to know, let me tell you. I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. In other words, Ahab, you think you have the people with you? You do not have anybody with you. These people are lost. You're not the shepherd of these people. You're not helping them in any way. They are totally lost. Let them go home. They'd be better on their own than under your leadership. Verse 18. The king of Israel said to Hosaphat, they're sitting there in their royal robes, didn't I tell you that he never prophesied anything good about me but only bad? I told you this would happen. Micaiah continues not being asked anymore, but continuing. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. Now we're getting into business. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the host of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? And one suggested this and another that. And finally, a a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked. I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all of his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. And so the Lord now has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. And in that moment when silence takes over all this moment, Zedekiah, the son of Kinana, the one who had made the iron horns, comes up and he slapped Micaiah in the face. Which way did the Spirit of the Lord go when he went from me to speak to you? He asked. Micaiah replied, you will find out on the day you go hide in an inner room from the enemy who will come attack you. Verse 26, and the king of Israel, Ahab then ordered, take Micaiah and send him back to Ammon, the ruler of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, this is what the king says, put this fellow in prison and give him nothing but bread and water until I return safely. And Micaiah declared, if you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. And then he added, mark my words, all you people. The story will continue, and the story essentially is this, that King Ahab goes into battle, And he decides, I'm going to outsmart my enemy by dressing like a normal civilian, or excuse me, normal soldier. And someone else will dress like the king. And the text reads that a random, quote-unquote random, arrow pierces his armor. And he spends all day bleeding out in his chariot facing the battle. And he dies at the end of the day, having blood out and seeing his troops die. And then to fulfill prophecy as his chariot is being cleaned, 
and all of his blood is running out into the streets, the, dog licks up, licks, the dogs lick up his blood, as has been prophesied. Meanwhile, Micaiah is sitting in prison, the one who brought the truth of the word, the authority of God to Ahab. Here's why I tell you this story. And here's why I tell you this story, not to share a principle with you. Because I could have shared a principle about the authority of God and his word, but I didn't want to because I want you to remember the story and what happens. Because it's so powerful what happens in this story. See, when we look at the authority of man and the authority of God, we'll often see um, two circles, kind of like this. We see God and man. We try to figure out how is it that I can learn from God and hear his voice and understand him. And here's the problem with that, is sometimes man's voice is used to explain God. In other words, we have to experience the means by which God communicates. Sometimes that's people preaching, teaching, writing. Sometimes it's the the message through song or whatever, sometimes it's just the Bible itself. There's always a means by which God communicates. And so here's what can happen. We can often look at this and say, I'm confused about who's talking or what's happening. Because I want to look at this and understand, is this God speaking or man? I don't know, and I'm kind of confused as to what's going on. We can kind of walk away from everything. We can kind of give up on trying to discern what God is trying to say when we get confused about, is this God or man speaking? A better way to look at it is this way, is that God exists, his authority exists, and man, in order to kind of speak some of that truth to us, has got to overlap, if you will, with some of God's authority, but then also speak sometimes kind of outside of God's authority. With the story of of Ahab and Micaiah, We have God speaking, we have men over here, these prophets quoting scripture to Ahab. These prophets taking the words of God and saying, Ahab, go and be victorious. The Bible tells you you'll be victorious. Taking the word of God and misapplying it. And then you have Micaiah who meets with God privately. And God speaks through him. And he delivers a word to Ahab, which is authoritative. And the authority comes not from the written word of God, but from that moment of authority with God. And here's what we see with Ahab. This is so important, because I think you can relate, because I know I can. And that is this. The more emotionally invested I am in my idea, the harder it is to submit to a contradictory idea. The more emotionally invested I am in the idea, the harder it is to submit to a contradictory idea. Ahab wants to attack Ramoth Gilead. That is no surprise. He told his court that before Jephthah even came down. Then he asks his prophets, should we do this? Go do it. They have a big party. They celebrate. Go do it. Then Micaiah comes down and he says, don't do it. God has spoken. Ahab says, I don't care. Go to jail. I'm going to do it. And Ahab dies. Dies. This is a life and death issue for Ahab. And it's a life and death issue for the people who followed him. When we're so emotionally invested, it becomes very difficult, very difficult to draw back and hear and submit to authority that's a contradictory authority. So when you're angry, when you're in love, when you're in hate, (laughs) when you're bitter, when your emotions are driving and have overcome you, it becomes very difficult to hear the authority of God saying, you should respond and do something different. You don't know how much I feel. You don't know what this person did. You don't understand how significant this issue is. I'm going to do it anyway. I'm smarter than, I'm bigger than, you you haven't been here. The more emotionally involved we are, the harder it is to submit to a contradictory idea. And this is also a problem here too, and that is this, that the older I get, the better I become at rationalizing my way out of obedience. The older I get, 
the smarter a sinner I become. You've seen this with people who just come to faith and they're like, you know what? I had no idea. Like, I should forgive everybody. Holy cow, like, Jesus, doesn't Jesus say you forgive 70 times 7? Like, I think that means everybody all the time. Like, I should just do that. I should be in that spirit of doing that. Wow. Then they meet an older Christian who's been following God for a while, and they're like, yeah, you should, but, but think about it this way, and think, well, just make sure that you do it the right way, and, and you know, just kind of draw that down a little bit, like, yeah. And then slowly over time, we begin to rationalize why we continue to live in our sin. The older I get, the smarter I become at learning how to sin, and the more I can rationalize away obedience. That's just part of the deal. It's just part of the deal for me, part of the way it is, I believe, for you. So let's go back to this. Let's go back to these two points that we said we agreed on, at least I said I agreed on, because I can say I agree with anything I say, right? If pursuing the highest good always results in our greatest happiness, and we are not good at figuring out the highest good, we have a problem. And it wouldn't it be great if only there was a way to discern the highest good without bias, even if it went against what we think is best. What if we could do that? And that's where we ask this question. And what is the role of the Bible in all of this? What is the role of the Bible? If it's true that we want the highest good, we're no good at being consistent in our own lives with it, and we would love actually to have something that could continually point us to the highest good, the question is, what is the role of the Bible? I want to clarify this for you, and this is so, so important. If you have been in church at all, and you're... Ah, you're a Bible person at all. Um, I will tell you, I, if I could take you down to my office right now, I could show you um, a manila envelope in which I have, and I think I've told you about this before. We did New Year's resolutions here at Paradise Mennonite Church, maybe 15, 20 years ago, I forget when it was. In those resolutions, almost everybody, almost everybody said, what I would like to resolve to do is be more consistent in reading my Bible and praying. Almost everybody. It is a constant drumbeat in the life of the person who wants to follow God. And I have no, no problem with it, but I want to put it in context. The question is, where does authority in the Bible come from? Because here's what happened. The prophets took the Bible and said to Ahab, go attack Ramoth Gilead. And they were dead by the time the story's over, because they were dead wrong. See, the authority doesn't lie just in the words of the text. And here's what's so important. The authority of the Bible does not reside in the Bible because the Bible is a set of rules or moral code for people to follow. The, the authority of the Bible is not that it reveals God's rules for you or for me. The authority of the Bible is not because we can become better dressers, better listeners of the right music, better daters and better marriage people, better business leaders, because now we know the right way ethically to live. That is not where the authority of the Bible comes from. The authority of the Bible is very, very simple. The authority of the Bible comes from God. God has spoken. The Bible is the means by which the character of God is revealed. Now here, the Bible is not a part of the Trinity. Right? We worship God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Spirit. We don't worship the Bible four in one with that. When the Bible is seen as a set of rules, and that's where its authority is, what we do is we put people into boxes. We try to tidy up people's lives and say, this is how God wants you to live. Make sure that you read this passage so you know how to dress differently. Make sure that you read this so that you know that you shouldn't drink that. Make sure that you read this so you know what you should do sexually before you're married. Make sure you read this so that you're covered over here and covered over there. And as long as everybody's life is tidied up, then you've responded to the authority of the Bible. Because that's what the authority of the Bible is, after all, isn't it? It's in the conduct of the Christians. And as long as you're responding rightly to that, you've got it. But that is not why we have the Bible. And that is why some of us have become so disenfranchised with even reading it. Because who likes to read a rule book? Who likes to read a conduct manual? Who is ever moved by reading the policy manual in your company and saying, this is so amazing. Now I know the policies of the company. You are moved, you are moved by the stories that impact you, aren't you? 
This is why when at Ben Landis's funeral last week, up here we heard story after story after story of the cabin and the impact of the cabin on that family. This is why I will tell you the, the thing that has impacted me the most about my grandparents on my mom's side be the time that my grandpa spent with me taking me on pitch and putt par three times. And we would come back from the mission field and go with him. And you know what that taught me? taught me character lessons. That taught me this is important to spend time with family and to enjoy one another. And he never once told me, Tim, let me tell you the rules of good fathering. Hey, while we go, I don't want to give you 17 things that you should do when you think about finding a wife. Let me tell you how you should act here and how you should act there. He never went that way. It was the impact of his life. And so here's what I say about the Bible. It is as we encounter God and the character that he reveals that we begin to understand this is where authority comes from. I read the Bible not so that I can fit people into boxes. I read the Bible so I can understand the character of God because that's where the authority from the Scriptures comes from. N.T. Wright, a pretty smart guy, he had to say this about authority in the Bible. He said this, God's authority vested in Scripture as the is designed, as all God's authority is designed, to liberate human beings, to judge and condemn evil and sin in the world in order to set people free to be fully human. This is a, this is a lot to say. God's authority is vested and designed so that God's, uh, in Scripture so that people are liberated and also, very important, to judge and condemn evil and sin in the world in order, in order to set people free to be fully human. In other words... God is in the business of saying, you may not like to hear what I have to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. And in that, you may feel condemned. But the reason I say it is for your benefit. So that you won't attack Ramoth Gilead and die. And you may feel, oh, I didn't like that because I want to do things my own way. But if you listen, you will be fully freed in your humanity. Put another way, N.T. Wright continues, he talks about it this way. He says, God does not then want to put people into little boxes and keep them safe and sound. It is, after all, possible to be so sound that you're sound asleep. I'm not in favor of unsoundness, but soundness means health, and health means growth, and growth means life and vigor in new directions. The little boxes in which you put people and kept them under control are called coffins. We read scripture not in order to avoid life and growth. God forgive us that we have done that in some of our traditions. Nor do we read scripture in order to avoid thought and action or to be crushed or squeezed or confined into a dehumanizing shape, but in order to die and rise again in our minds. When we read the scripture, when we read and know the God of the Bible, not just the Word of God, but the God of the Bible, we will have this reaction. Man, but I want to do it my way. God's authority will challenge yours. In the Bible, we talk about words like judgment. Okay? We, we use words like that. Here's what we mean. I know you want to, I know you want to do that. Ahab, I know that you want to attack Ramoth Gilead. I know that. But let me kind of judge that for you. Let me hear that and respond and give you a verdict. Bad idea. Bad idea. That's my judgment of your idea. Bad idea. And here's the good idea. That's judgment. Okay, judgment isn't you're a terrible person. We hate you. We can never have a future with you. No, no, no. Judgment saying, listen, let me challenge what you're thinking. And if we are... Right, we know that that is exactly what we want. You want the truth, not just what you want to hear. Because you want the highest good. Now, God's word, his authority, will challenge yours and challenge mine. That is very difficult, especially when we're emotionally invested in something. But this is also true. God's authority cannot be separated from his mercy. We've got to understand that. And so when God says, you know what? I want you to think. I want you to think for a minute about how you're parenting. I want you to think for a minute about how you're dating. I want, you to, I want you to think for a minute about your heart attitude toward this person or that person. I, want you, I just want you to think about this, and I want to kind of judge for you what you might like to do. And I want you to think about it in light of what I might do. 
Now, as you continue to step forward and fail, I forgive. You, you continue and try to step forward and don't make it, I am not going anywhere. I'm here to support your growth. The mercy is a part of God's character. It can't be separated from that. And so, the scriptures are given to us in order that we may get to know the God of the Bible. In order that we may be able to see his character and understand who he is and what he might want from us and understand the stories of how we should walk, live, and care for one another. Just part of the deal. Now, with that all being said, let me kind of wrap it up this way. This final question we ask is this. How much authority am I willing to give God and his word in my life? This is our tag-on question to our value trying to push this personally, how much authority am I willing to give God and his word in my life? It's a difficult question to answer legitimately. It's easy to answer when you're not emotionally invested in something. Sure, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah, I'll give God authority. Sure, no problem. But then when God says, listen, you've invited me to challenge you. You've invited me to correct you. I know you think you're smart. You are. But you're not me. You're not, you're, not, you're not God. And so if you're going to be under my authority, I'm going to challenge you. And there may be things that I say to you that you may not like to hear. And you have a choice. You can, like Ahab, put me in prison. Send Micaiah out, bread and water until I come back. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Forget it. I'm going to do it. You can do that if you want to. You also might die. You also might ruin your family. You also might ruin your business. You might ruin your reputation. If you want to pursue the highest good, because the highest good will bring you the greatest pleasure, let me invite you to submit to my authority, because I always know what the highest good is. Always. And wouldn't it be great if there was a way that we could know without bias, without bias, what the highest good always was. I want to offer you some practical suggestions on what to do this morning. This may sound very traditional in the one sense, but I think it's very valuable on the other hand. That is this. You ask the question, what do I do? What do I do with this information? What do I do from here? Number one, I want to suggest, pray this. God, you're in charge. If you eat a meal during the day, which I think is most of us, let me encourage you this week, this week, add this to your meal. God, you're in charge. Just get in that habit, that routine, of reminding yourself, saying it again to God, God, you're in charge. God, you're in charge. God, you're in charge. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, God, you're in charge. The daily reminder, God, you're in charge. You don't need to sit down for two hours and do this. I mean, this is a right before I go to eat, God, you're in charge. And see what that discipline, that habit of reminding yourself who's in charge will do in your attitudes and your values as you go. God, you're in charge. Number two, I want to say this. Read personally, and I'm going to throw this one up here as well. Three, connect relationally. In other words, reading the Bible, reading this is not meant to be, if you will read this, now you will find all the rules and behaviors for the Christian life. In reading this, you find out the stories of the character of God. You find out why he works the way he does. But I will tell you, the reason that in that survey 20 years ago, whatever it was, that almost everybody said, I wish I could do this more, is because we rarely attach the third one to the second one. We rarely attach connect relationally with read personally. You will never, you will never, did I say never? Because I, I mean never. You will never be consistent personally like you can be when you're connected relationally. Never. It will not happen because you're not wired that way. God has not wired you to do this well by yourself. Who can you connect with? Small group, Sunday school class, men's, women's group, friends at work, I don't care. It doesn't need to be a part of the church necessarily, but who can you connect to? Relationally, to say, I want to keep growing. 
Keep me accountable. I want to grow together with you. We will never be able to do this well on our own. Can you imagine what it would be like if you could live in a world in which you always made decisions for the highest good? Can you imagine a world in which you could make decisions in which you always knew what the highest good was and always did it? This is what God is saying in the authority of God and his word. At the beginning, middle, and end of the day, God is in charge, and we want to submit to him. When our will conflicts with his, he wins. The Bible reveals God's clearest desires. How much authority am I willing to give God and his word in my life? And Can you imagine what it would be like if we didn't have to deal with the unnecessary heartache of doing things on our own? Can you imagine what it would be like if we didn't just read the Bible because of a set of rules or conduct code that we had to respond to or a set of principles about theology, but it was a chance to get to know God where true authority from the Word comes from? Can you imagine if you're connected relationally with people who helped on this journey? It's an awesome thing and a challenging thing. God will challenge you. And his challenge can never be separated from his mercy. Because none of us are ever as good as we're going to be together. How much authority am I willing to give God and his word in my life? Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the chance this morning to be in your word. To see the story of Ahab and Jephthah. Now Ahab responded in his own emotion, his own will, his own desires to do his own thing. I pray for us as we are always thinking about what is the right decision to make. You know, what's the right move to make? What's the best way to move forward? We are people who struggle to submit to authority because we're pretty smart. We know a lot. We think we know what we're doing. And in the middle of our life in which you have gifted us with great minds and sharp intellect and, and great intuition... You've given us the ability to make good decisions along the way. May we never mistake that strength and that gifting for our own dependency or for a lack of need to submit to you. And so I pray that you would renew in us a desire to to know you, to know you through your word, to know you in relationship with people, to hear from you, to engage with you, to submit to your authority. Not because we're following a list of rules that you've laid down or a particular theological bent, but because of you and the authority that you offer. May our faith in you hold us and anchor us all of what could be, no matter what may come. And we pray this in Jesus' name.